But Father, more than just revealing those truths, we pray now that you will cause those truths to impact our hearts, to change us, to mould us, to shape us, to transform us into the people that you call us to be in the Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Hold it right there, partner. You've been a rustler my cattle again. We're going to pack up and settle this once and for all. We're going to meet at high noon in the street. This town ain't big enough for the two of us. I do a lousy John Wayne impression. Absolutely lousy. I'd never get a job as a B-grade spaghetti western. But I reckon Saul, whose Roman name was Paul, would have made a great John Wayne. For him, the sudden sprouting of these followers of Jesus was a declaration of war. To worship this Nazarene was treason. It was treason against the traditions of the fathers. To swear allegiance to this dead teacher was rebellion in the ranks. To promote him as the Christ was insurrection against the Jewish elders and the leaders. Saul, Paul, we'll call him Saul today. Saul had seen and heard enough of this, of this new religious, religious fanaticism, of this misguided offshoot from the true faith of Abraham. He'd seen enough to judge it for what he knew it was. Heresy. It was false. And so he made it his purpose to crush this growing band, to stamp it out before others also could be led astray. After all, Saul was well qualified to know what he was talking about. A Hebrew of the Hebrews, a top-flight Pharisee, well-schooled, well-connected. How dare these backwoods agitators, fishermen from Galilee no more, how dare they come along and, and start up this, this, this new sect, this, this group called The Way? Oh, yes, they're dead Jesus. He referred to himself as, as the way, the truth, and the life. But how arrogant. How arrogant for a mere man to claim that, that he was the only way to God. <laughs> More than arrogant. Downright blasphemous. How, how could that carpenter's son, how could he be God's promised saviour, the promised king? Everybody knows that, that this Jesus was crucified as a common criminal, and even simple Jews, even Galilee fishermen. They know that God law says that, that anyone who's killed by being nailed to a tree is under the curse of God. So from Saul's view, this Jesus just couldn't be the Christ. For this Jesus is cursed. To follow him, couldn't be the way to God, but it would continue to lead good Jews astray. This Christianity stuff was a revolt from within. It was an insurrection that had to be put down. And Saul, Saul took it upon himself to crush us, to snuff it out. And if you recall back into our early sections in Acts, there in chapter 7, Paul saw lends his considerable weight at the stoning of Stephen. And at the start of chapter 8, it records Saul launching into a campaign of, quote, destroying the church, going house to house in Jerusalem as he drags off men and women and throws them in prison. 
And here, as was read for us at the start of chapter 9, it begins with Saul still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Pretty strong language. Breathing out murderous threats. And he takes it upon himself to, to cast his net even further afield. He gets warrants to extradite infidels from as, from as far away as Damascus. You and I, we don't think too much about the geography of this, but that was a week's walk away. It was a long way. It'd be like getting in your car today and driving to far north Queensland or, or over to Perth to go and arrest somebody. Saul was really passionate. He was zealous to defend the ancient faith. He was zealous also to contain a, a religious Ebola. But just as an aside, if you think about the geography, Damascus is north of Jerusalem. And guess what country Saul would have to cross through in order to get to Damascus? An area called Samaria. Yeah. And if you recall through Acts, you'll recall there that, that Samaria was full of towns that, that now had great joy resonating in it. As Philip and John and Peter had brought to those towns the salvation of Jesus. So imagine the scene with me. Here's this, here's this traveling black storm called Saul. He's crossing despised Samaria, and he's coming across all these converted Samaritans who are rejoicing, who are bursting in their skins because they've accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Saul would have been fuming. He only had arrest warrants for wayward Jews, not foolish Samaritans. Not only wasn't the town big enough for both of them, so it seemed, it now looked like the world wasn't going to be big enough for both of them. And so Saul is all set for a showdown. His tringet figure just itching to use those extradition papers. Those rebels will soon find out who's boss. And as Saul strides out nearing Damascus, high noon couldn't come fast enough for him. But high noon came sooner than he expected. And the showdown wasn't to be with the followers of Jesus in Damascus, but with Jesus himself on the road to Damascus. And this encounter of Saul with Jesus is recorded here for us in Acts 9 is recorded again twice more in chapter 22 and chapter 26. And those accounts tell us that it was about noon, when the sun was at its highest and strongest, that a piercing light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazed down around him. The brilliance of the light blinded his eyes. And Saul falls to the ground. But the dazzling light isn't the important bit to see in this scene. That was just the attention grabber. What's truly important is that the, 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 the Jesus that Peter and John were preaching, the Jesus that, that thousands were believing in, the Jesus who was supposed to have come back from the dead, the Jesus who claimed to be the only way to heaven, the Son of God, the Christ, the Saviour of the world, the Messiah, this Jesus now appears to Saul. 
in this light that blinds him. Saul sees the crucified, risen, exalted, glorified Jesus. And if that's not enough, what Jesus says to him stops him completely cold in his tracks. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? This disoriented Saul, this light from heaven, this voice, clearly this is, this is all otherworldly, this is divine. Yet, me? Persecuting God? Something's, something's amiss here. I'm one of the good guys. I've got a white hat on. I'm killing Christians because I love the truth. I'm on God's side. Or am I? What does he mean? Persecuting him. And so Saul asks a question back. Who are you, Lord? Or does he ask it this way? Who are you? Lord? It doesn't really matter, though, where you put the emphasis in that question. For the same reply comes back from heaven. I am Jesus. I am Jesus. Have you ever got on a train at Central bound for Beecroft? And as you pull out of Central, the guard announces, Welcome aboard the 554 Blue Mountains Express. First stop, Penrith, then Springwood, then all stations to Katoomba. Ever filled your petrol tank at the service station, only to find you've left your wallet at home? Have you ever dreamed of being prepped for surgery, and as you count backwards from 100, the last thing you remember is someone else's name tag on your wrist? Panic. Confusion disorientation, internal meltdown. What do I do now? And we blurt out, oh golly gosh! A reasonable reaction to those sorts of instances. But I put it to you that that is nothing, nothing compared to the dilemma that's facing Saul here when he hears those words. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. This is divine. I'm meeting face to face. I'm seeing the living God. And he's telling me I'm persecuting him. Saul was on his way to arrest Christians. Yet Jesus intervenes and arrests Saul. This is curl up and die territory. It's shame. It's devastation. It's personal deep anguish. It's gut-wrenching. It's soul-tearing agony. They're not the rebels. They're not the infidels. God, you're saying, I am? 
rather than defending the Lord? All this time I've, I've actively been set about on destroying him? Jesus is Lord. The equation finally comes together for Saul. Later on in Romans chapter 7, Paul writes, Woe is me, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And it's no surprise later that Paul described himself as a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent man, acting in ignorance and unbelief. And he claims the infamy of being the worst of sinners. Before Jesus intervened on that road to Damascus, no doubt Saul knew much about Jesus. Oh, there's no evidence their paths ever crossed while Jesus walked this earth. But as a leading Jew, even outside of Jerusalem, the grapevine would have hummed with reports of all of Jesus' miracles. His radical teachings would have, would have echoed throughout Judea. Clearing the temple with a whip would have been the lead item on the six o'clock news. And someone doesn't rise from the grave without going viral on Twitter. Saul would have interrogated dozens of Christians as he went door to door through Jerusalem before throwing them to prison. And I'd bet you anything that more than a few of those would have witnessed to him about what it meant to have salvation in Jesus. Ah, Saul had a great big data file on Jesus. He knew heaps about what Jesus stood for. So in that sense, Saul was not ignorant at all. But knowing about a person and knowing a person are vastly different experiences. And in that showdown at high noon on the road to Damascus, Jesus confronts Saul in person as Lord, as the risen Saviour, as the Christ. And the power of his presence, evidenced by this dazzling light, overwhelms Saul physically. But much, much more importantly, it overcomes Saul's spiritual disbelief. And in seeing Jesus, he sees the horror of his own life for the first time. It is I who've been opposing God. I am the rebel. I am the infidel. All that I've held dear has been wrong. But he also sees that since this Jesus is God's promised saviour, then it is through Jesus that all of Saul's sins, no matter how shameful and how black and how murderous, can and have been forgiven by God in Christ. And that's the same flood of mercy that poured through John Newton's soul and caused him to pen those wonderful words, was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. 
God's intervention in our life is for our eternal good. He wakes us up to ourselves. And sometimes, as in Saul's situation here, God does it painfully and abruptly so that we might receive his mercy and experience his love. And so the Saul who cries out in anguish, Woe is me, what a wretched man am I! Who will save me from this body of death? is the same Saul who answers in the very next part from the depths of gratitude, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the shared testimony of us all who not just know about Jesus, but who know Jesus as their personal Lord and Saviour and who know the power of Jesus as he has freed us from all our sins No longer are God's children under condemnation. No longer must we linger in the shadows of shame. No longer must we put energy into masking our guilt. No longer are we slaves to sin and held in the fear of death. For the power of Christ's death upon the cross has cancelled our debt. He's paid the price for our punishment. He has erased all of our guilt before God. And as incredible as it may seem to us, the moment that we put our trust in the Lord Jesus, God sees us as he sees his precious son, Jesus. He sees us holy. He sees us righteous. He sees us perfect. Does God have defective eyesight? Does God wear rose-coloured glasses? Is God denying reality? No! It is us who deny the reality. We fail to grasp or to fully accept the power of Jesus to cleanse our sin completely and utterly and forever. Sins past, sins present, sins in the future that we're yet to commit. These have all been dealt with once and for all, totally and exhaustively at the cross for those who believe. Forget about the blinding lights on a Damascus road. Forget about a voice like thunder. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is at the very heart of the power of God. Who else but God can forgive sins? And forgive sins he does. And if you're secure in being forgiven, then all else is but embroidery on the tapestry of salvation. As we read there in Acts 9, once the grace of God had grabbed Saul and he grasped that Jesus had saved even him, the worst of sinners, Everything changed. Absolutely everything. God's intervention turned him around. It inverted all that he stood for, from being a a persecutor of Christians to now being a preacher of Christ. Within a few short days, it happens. It's like that Christmas that Rod was talking about. And so in verse 20 of Acts chapter 9, it tells us that at once Saul began to preach in the synagogues of Damascus 
that Jesus is the Son of God. Can you imagine that scene? You know, you rock up to your, to your, to your, to your regular synagogue service and you hear, oh, oh, Saul's coming in. Oh, great. Oh, wow. You know, we've heard a lot about this bloke. Yeah. Whoa. And you rock up and instead of Saul telling us about how he's going to round up all the infidels and, and, and chuck them into prison, he stands up in front of us and starts openly promoting that Jesus is the Christ that the Christians are right, that Jesus is God in the flesh, who's the promised Messiah. Would have been double take. I bet you didn't get a second gig in any of those synagogues. But he got around, teaching the synagogues that Jesus is the Christ. He was turned around. But the main arena for service for Saul lay way outside of this comfort zone of preaching in synagogues. You see, Saul was a top-flight Pharisee. He was a Jew amongst Jews. And so what was Jesus' chosen task for him? This man, says Jesus. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles. God had intentionally picked Saul out to be his apostle to the non-Jews. You see, if there were going to be questions about half-Jews, those you know, smelly Samaritans, if there was going to be questions about Samaritans becoming Christians, then there would be absolutely enormous problems for non-Jews, for Gentiles, becoming partners in faith. And so God takes a true blue Jew, one with impeccable credentials, to carry the gospel into the Gentile world, to show indeed that Jesus is the saviour for all sinners. And whilst it's good for us to remark on the inversion of Paul's, Saul's actions, of how his career, so to speak, was, was turned upside down, within this, we mustn't lose sight of the far more significant inversion that has taken place in Saul's heart. Saul's change from a persecutor to a preacher gains its power in the surrender that has gone on in his heart. Saul the persecutor, he held firm to certain beliefs, beliefs that he swore were true. Things like, this Jesus is a blasphemer, this Jesus is a fraud. This Jesus breaks God's holy law. This Jesus is cursed by God. This Jesus deserves to die. Saul was willing to kill for what he believed to be true. He believed it to be true, yet it wasn't true. It's our beliefs that give power to our behaviour. The beliefs that we, that we lock up not here in our heads, but down here in our hearts, about what God is like, about who we are, about how we get into God's good books. It's these heart beliefs that fuel us. And when God intervenes, he begins a lifelong work in us of challenging these presuppositions that we hold dear, bringing them to light and calling us to surrender our cherished but false beliefs and exchange them for God's true truths. Yes, God is concerned about 
what we do, about our behaviour? Of course he is. But he is vitally concerned about why we do what we do. And so we have a passage in the Old Testament out of Isaiah 29 like this. These people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And over in Hebrews chapter 4, it reminds us there that, that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. For Saul to change from persecutor to preacher and to really change more than just surface behaviour meant surrendering the things he held dear, the values that shaped his life, the beliefs that made him a Hebrew of the Hebrews. To surrender all that for God's true truth. The true truth that Jesus is Saul's Lord. The true truth that God sent Jesus into the world to save Saul. The true truth that, that God accepts Saul entirely and forever. Only because all of Saul's sins have been washed clean in the blood of Jesus. The true truth that as a forgiven sinner, God will never condemn Saul. The true truth that as an adopted child, God will never shame Saul or reject him from his forever family. Do you believe God's true truths about you? Do you really believe God loves you? Or when it says God so loved the world, does your heart tell you, oh, that means other people? Do you really accept that, that God clothes you in righteousness? Because deep down you really do know that, that you're not good enough for that. Do you really think that, that come heaven you'll get away with, without any punishment at all given what you know you're really like and what you've really done? Do you tell yourself that, that, grace, that grace, grace can't really be as good as what the preacher makes out? At least not for you anyway? What are the truths that your heart believes? And how do they stack up against God's true truths? Jesus once said, you will know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Look what it did for Saul. He surrendered to the truth and it transformed him. God did that for Saul. God does that for us. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that we do learn from your word. Learn, our Father, not just facts and figures and ideas, not just concepts, but, Father, that we learn from you who you are, your character, your nature, your goodness, your love, your mercy, 
your amazing grace. And that we learn from you what it truly means to be forgiven. And our Father, how that frees us in order to serve you in ways that you, you desire. Father, cause us to, to challenge the things that we, we hear in your word but somehow don't seem to ring true for us personally. That we might figure out our Father God whether your true truth will prevail or whether our own hard attitudes will. And Father, let us not be slow about that. Father, we can see here in Saul how just within a, within a very short space of time you caused your true truth to impact on his life and help our Father turn the whole world around. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.